Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels, a podcast collaboration between Cambridge University's Bennett Institute for Public Policy and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. This series is all about using the interdisciplinary strengths of both institutions to explore some of the many complex challenges facing our societies. I'm Rory Catlin-Jones and today's episode asks the question, why do we make bad decisions? We're going to look at the psychological quirks of humankind, what effects those bad decisions have on the society we live in and how policy might best steer us towards better outcomes. To explore these issues today, we have Teresa Marteau from the University of Cambridge. Teresa, remind us of your main research interests. Thanks very much. I'm a behavioural scientist and I'm interested in identifying the cues in our everyday environments that shape our behaviour, often without our awareness, and then assessing what happens if you change those cues, what impact that has on our behaviour. We've got plenty to explore there. Uh, and then from the IAST, the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse, we have uh, Bensa Bago. Bensa, what do you focus on? Hi, Rory. It's great to be here. I'm a cognitive psychologist and uh, I studied the underlying psychological mechanisms of why people form false beliefs and why they ma- make uh, errors in their decision making. So you've been deep into the world of bad decision-making. So let's start by asking each of you what sort of decisions you research and and what you you would count as a bad decision under that label. Bensa, what about you? What sort of decisions are you researching and how do you determine what is a a bad decision? Um, Well, we research um, all sorts of decisions, but mostly like individual decisions, uh, financial decisions. But what I'm mostly interested in is actually the reasoning and the beliefs underlying the decision-making process, right? So, and how do we define bad decisions or or, or bad beliefs? For, for that definition, we always need some kind of normative system to to. Um, make normative predictions on what is like a good decision. For example, this can come from rational decision theory on economics or, or utility theory, or even just logic or probabilities can dictate what a good decision is. And then whoever deviates from that decision is actually making a bad decision because it's not, it's a sub, a suboptimal decision. It's not the correct mathematically or logically correct decision. And when we talk about beliefs or reasoning, it's especially about beliefs. It's sometimes it's, it's a bit harder to define what a bad belief is because sometimes it requires a vast uh, knowledge of events. For example, like how people can tell that the uh, news is fake is, is actually fake or true is it requires a lot of editorial processes. People have to look through a lot of evidence. It's it's very complicated, long process. So it's really different from actual decision-making. Let's look at an example. I mean, uh, and the, 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 it's very interesting that you say that there are kind of value judgments there in deciding what is bad and what is good. So deciding why someone uh, took a job that paid them half as much as they could have earned in a different job, that by one definition is a bad decision, but if the poorly paid job is more rewarding in other ways, it's a good decision. Absolutely. I mean, this is why we have a normative system to try to normative systems to to try to define what's the best decision in such a case. 
and especially utility theory, they take into account what is best for you. And therefore, those decisions that might look actually completely irrational or bad from the outside, actually very good and reasonable from a different theoretical perspective. Teresa, what's your take on that? Um, are you making value judgments about what is uh, sensible behaviour or, or not sensible behaviour? Implicitly, I am, but at a very different level to the one that Bence has just outlined that he's working on, which is traditional cognitive psychology terrain. And the behaviours that I'm focused on are those which, on average, people would prefer not to have the end state from those behaviours. So just to put that into simpler English, um, obesity, uh, obesity in children, obesity in adults, overweight adults is, is a major problem worldwide. And my focus is not so much on an individual who wants to lose weight, but starting from the observation that the majority of people would prefer not to be overweight or obese. The majority of people would prefer not to have children, regardless of whether they're their children or not, but our children being overweight or obese. How, therefore, can we change behavior at scale so that what people are doing fits more with their values on average. And is this a timeless problem making, say, for instance, these decisions about whether you'll eat fatty food or not fatty food? Or has modern society made it easier to make the wrong decision, as it were? What we're seeing is humans haven't changed that much over the last you know, hundreds of years. But what has changed are the environments in which we are now living. And you'll know that as well as anybody else, Rory, in terms of the technological changes that we've had. But if we're thinking about our food environments or our travel environments, they bear little relationship to the environments in which we lived 100 years ago. So just again, sticking with with food environments, humans have evolved uh, to eat high energy food when there's little around. And what we've now got is a a surplus of high energy food that's incredibly cheap and readily available for most people. And that can lead to, well, is leading to overconsumption. Benser, one area I think you look at is misinformation. And of course, there the environment has changed radically compared with even 20 years ago in terms of social media. What does your research say there? We don't know, like, at least I don't know how misinformation consumption was changed by the appearance of social media. Did it change the content of misinformation? We don't know that. But what we know for sure is that it made it more available to masses of people. So even people who would who might not normally find misinformation in their environment, they might actually meet it just because they are present on social media. So what social media did is that it just made it available uh, for everybody. And what has your research found in in that area about uh, what makes things spread and what what doesn't? Have you looked at that in terms of humans' reaction to reading, you know, lies about things that may affect them, say, for instance, vaccines? Absolutely. So there are two important questions that my my research looked at. 
And for that, we have to differentiate between two types of, of behaviors. First is, is actually believing misinformation or believing any type of information. And the second is actually spreading the, the information, so basically resharing it. And many research shows that these behaviors are not necessarily correlated with each other. So and first, in terms of beliefs, one of the most important things that I've been looking at is depth of processing is uh, what we call it is basically how much time and energy as a person are you willing to put into figuring out that an information is correct or not. So what we observe is that if we can make people think more to slow down, to think more about a piece of information, it's going to decrease their belief in that misinformation. But it's not going to affect true information. So it's not going to decrease belief in, in true news, but only to misinformation. That is what we call analytic thinking. And the second thing is what we observe is that emotionality uh, of the headlines so, uh, actually increases belief in any type of headline, but especially misinformation. So they tend to be uh, somewhat more emotional and they are going to increase the emotional reaction that the reader gets and and therefore they are less likely to engage in analytic thinking or just more likely to, to believe it in any case. And about the spread of information, what we see and others, actually there's a lot of research in this area, is that emotionality of the headlines or emotionality of the information itself is increases the the, the spread of, of uh, misinformation. And we know that uh, when people think about sharing headlines, they don't really focus on, on, on their accuracy. They focus on other factors such as how much that piece of information is fitting with the uh, potential readership. So your friends or family, whoever is going to read it, on social media, and that is actually playing a more important role than uh, actual accuracy. So that's why people get a diverted attention from um, from the accuracy of the headline, share misinformation. They don't really want to share misinformation, but they do because they don't pay attention to, to actually figuring out the truth at that moment. Then they also do it because it's fun. It's more fun to share a tall tale. It's more, more fun to spread news that... Um, a man has bitten a dog, then a dog has bitten a man. It definitely plays a role, don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, people don't want to share misinformation because it just hurts their reputation. There's a lot of research in that area. I didn't do any research in this, but but there's a lot of research available that actually it hurts their reputation. So, so you don't want to share misinformation because people will think that, well, your information is not valuable enough. So they don't believe you, they won't follow you, they won't like your stuff. So we've looked at two areas where people may be making bad decisions, uh, the area of misinformation and, 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 and trusting that, uh, and the area of diet choices. What can governments do to improve matters there? Are they using the research findings that people like you are coming up with to them, themselves make better decisions and to change the decisions their citizens make? In the area of diet, Teresa, is that happening? A bit, but not nearly enough. If we look at uh, two big government ambitions in the UK at the moment, uh, one is halving childhood obesity by 2030. That was an ambition set out in 2018. Another is net zero by 2050 with a carbon budget for 2035. And to achieve both of those, there need to be 
significant changes to what we're eating and the policies are not built enough on the scientific evidence to achieve it. So where we have seen evidence coming into policies, we had in the UK and elsewhere what are sometimes called soda taxes. So we had the soft drinks industry levy that was introduced in 2018. And uh, that resulted in less sugar, about 10% less sugar uh, coming into people's homes when they were buying soft drinks, which is great. We've got another intervention, which I don't think is being stopped. Last time I read the paper, which is to restrict in shops, in stores, where junk food can be placed. And my group is one of the few that has been able to generate some evidence on that. And we managed to put together two data sets that allowed us to see that if drink, so we were looking at alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks, are placed on the aisle ends, it can increase the likelihood that that drink ends up in someone's shopping trolley by between 25 and 50%. So that's a very large effect. So hopefully that is going to be implemented quite soon. Just to make the point about the extent to which we need governments to make these changes, Uh, A few years ago in the UK, there was what was called the responsibility deal. So the idea was that we would have some evidence about what could work and industry, in this case retailers, would uh, voluntarily introduce those items. So there was one supermarket in the UK, I'm not sure if it's in the public domain, so I'll, I'll resist, where they removed all their displays of alcohol when people went into the store. None of the other stores did that. Their sales went down. Nobody else's sales went down. So they stopped doing it. A bad decision for that supermarket. Absolutely. And so one of the points that uh, that illustrates is some of the industries here are, are calling for legislation in order to have a level playing field. I mean, the other philosophical question here is, have you the right as a state to take decisions for your citizens, which may seem overbearing, which may seem to be telling them what's in their best interest and in in the short term may not be in their best interest. There's a great example right now about very cheap, uh, basically junk food deals, buy one, get one free, talk of banning them at a time when food prices are soaring, that could be seen to be making a harsh economic decision for citizens who might think, yeah, it's up to me to decide whether I, I want to eat bad stuff. At least it's stuff I can afford. I agree. But if one looks at the evidence, what it tells us is that theoretically, if people did buy uh, just on promotional goods, then there could be a saving. But when we look at what happens when people goes in, go into stores, it actually increases the amount that they spend because these tend to be unplanned, impulsive purchases and can increase spend by as much as 20%. And these uh, deals, uh, so-called deals, are on junk food. And what we also know is that if you've got a bar of chocolate in your house and, oh, look, you've got two, then you will eat two rather than one. So you've spent more money and you've arguably harmed your health or possibly that of your child. So 
I think the evidence that we're seeing being argued about at the moment is uh, it's a distortion of what the evidence shows. So it would actually be better for households if these deals were removed straight away. Ben, sir, what's the evidence that governments or regulators are looking at the kind of research you and your colleagues are doing when it comes to misinformation and understanding how to do something about that, how to change people's way of thinking? Governments, I don't know, but uh, we're kind of hoping that social media companies would be willing to change their policies to implement some interventions that could actually help people to not share uh, misinformation, for example. And what kind of interventions might that be? They, they would presumably depend on actually acting in some ways against the social media company's financial interests, because the more people click on things, the more money they earn from advertising, whether or not those things are true or false. Absolutely. But I feel like there is an intention to regulate uh, these social media companies in terms of society, because people... If you ask them, there is like a very high agreement that they don't want to see or share misinformation. They don't want it. So, so governments are being forced to actually do something about it. And social media companies could actually... So one strategy that um, people looked at is to divert their attention to accuracy. These are called accuracy prompts. So... People should focus on their accuracy just when they evaluate the headlines. So they just like little prompts that they get when they enter social media or something like that. Another thing that, that's been being done uh, and has been uh, done forever, basically, is fact-checking and retraction. So basically, but fact-checking is, is a really good, uh, important process. And we know that after something is uh, retracted or is not shown or, or it says that this is a false information, people usually don't believe it anymore. So correction works in that sense. But fact-checking is really a problematic process in the sense that it's very, very slow. It's not really scalable. It takes a lot of time. And there is a lot of, lot of information on social media. And it's not uncontroversial. There's a huge ideological battles over facts. Yes, exactly. So there is always a battle of what, what should count as true. But, you know, fact-checking itself is a very objective process. You say something and there should be evidence for that thing to happen. If you don't find that evidence, then there is no fact, there is, is nothing. Everything should depend on evidence. Which brings us really to the, the great case study, the, the great example of, of recent years of, of where decisions matter both at an individual level and a government level, which is the global pandemic. I know you, you Teresa, have been very heavily involved in a, a, the government body SAGE, which advises on that from the behavioural point of view. What sort of decisions by the public have you been most focused on in terms of how they respond to cues to, I don't know, stay at home, to behave sensibly in terms of social contact and so on? I think during the pandemic, a number of things struck me. First of all was how rapidly people changed their behaviour in major ways, almost overnight, in the face of an immediate threat. And this contrasts very much with the usual behaviours that I'm studying, for which 
we're trying to change them in the face of a longer term threat, be it climate change, be it non-communicable diseases. So people change their behaviour really radically and rapidly. One of the main behaviour changes was reducing the number of social contacts people had each day staying at home as well as washing hands and, and so on. The other thing that it really brought home was how, well, the majority of people were motivated to make those changes, not everybody could. So very early on, we saw good evidence that regardless of whether you were rich or poor, the desire to self-isolate, to stay at home if you were infected was equally high. But the ability to do that depended on whether or not you could work at home and whether or not you had enough money to support your family if you were going to self-isolate particularly if you're in the gig economy. So those are sort of two very strong observations that we see in other contexts. And a third one that I, I, I throw in is how interesting it was, how rapidly people changed their routines. For many people, particularly those working at home, they developed different routines, different habits, and some of them we're living with now. So in the context of health, although some people became more active, on average, the levels of activity in children and adults have not gone back to pre-pandemic levels. So people became more sedentary, more screen time, and guess what? They also ate more. And we're seeing that in childhood obesity, where there's been an increase in the proportion of children who are obese. I think the 2018 figures were 20% of children aged 10 who were obese. It's now 25%, and simply for adults. So we saw lots of things. <laughs> and we had a sort of classic example of people facing a decision where it might have been good for society, but bad for them. For instance, somebody who got a ping from the UK government's contact tracing app saying, you ought to stay at home because you've been in contact with somebody infected. They had to make the decision between obeying that, possibly for the good of society, and saying to themselves, well, actually, that means I will lose out on social contact and I will lose out financially because I will not be able to go to work. What evidence was there of how those pressures played out, whether there was social pressure, for example, on them? Because as a whole, society was saying, stay at home. I think I can't now remember, uh, Ben's could probably remind me about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I can't remember what's at the top, but uh, pretty near the top will be food, being able to eat. And so for the families, the households that were living on the lowest income, they could not make that decision to stay at home, even though they might have wanted to, to protect society. So they didn't have that choice. And while government policies did shift, a little bit to provide more financial support for some of those families, it was difficult to access. And at the same time, there was a system of fines introduced if people didn't self-isolate. So although it was not formally evaluated, which is another whole problem, what it seemed, what we heard, was that people then stopped getting testing. Because if you were tested, you were found to be positive and you couldn't afford to self-isolate, then don't get tested. So you don't know if you're infected and therefore you can carry on working. At a top level, that's how those dilemmas uh, that, that, that people experienced, but they didn't have um, the ability to choose to stay at home. And Ben, sir, how did, I mean, misinformation obviously played a huge role during this period. Misinformation about 
vaccines. Did you see people making what you might class as wrong decisions because of that? It is something that is incredibly hard to estimate from a, a scientific point of view. Like We don't know how much uh, misinformation played a role in any type of behavior. It's, it's, in, it's incredibly hard to estimate. For sure, what we know is that there are conspiracy theories about COVID-19, such as the 5G towers that um, activate the virus uh, conspiracy. And then many people attacked the the tower. Of course, um, that was definitely motivated by a conspiracy theory, but measuring the, the extent to which uh, misinformation plays a role in, in actual behavior, it's, it's incredibly hard. And Teresa, another thing that fascinates me, we're talking about decisions of the general public. What is also interesting is the way the people at the top making the decisions, the, the ministers, the chief scientists and so on, was that an interesting laboratory for a behavioural scientist? Well, I was partially cited in all of it because SAGE grew like Topsy. So there were any number of subgroups and Patrick Balance as the chief scientific advisor and Chris Whitty as the chief medical officer were the ones who were collating the evidence together. And so I had partial sight of some of that. But then when they lobbed it over the castle wall uh, into number 10 cabinet office, goodness knows what happened. And one of my uh, recommendations, if anybody wants to know my recommendations for next time, is that it would be really good if we had more of a dialogue, a formal dialogue. So Sage published the papers, synthesized the evidence try to be very clear about the uncertainty in the evidence, the confidence behind uh, all of the, the statements. And then sometimes that was incorporated into policy and sometimes there was a deafening silence. Sometimes they did the opposite. And what I think would increase trust in policy responses to advice, both for the advisors, but also for the public, would be as if a government, uh, the policymakers made a formal response, didn't have to be that detailed, where they would give their, their reasons. They might have had other scientific advice, they might have been weaving in other considerations, but just to have that documented, I think, would have increased trust and would have increased the science, uh, you know, the evidence that, that we were working on. Let's wrap up by by trying to draw some of those lessons. What I'd like is a sort of a minute summary from summary from each of you about what needs to change to improve decision making across our societies to learn better from the kind of behavioural work that you both do. Spencer, what's your recipe if you have one? We talked about misinformation, but I what I think is the worst uh, problem right now is actually information itself. In fact, information environments and how polarized they are. So if you are learning one type of, if you are watching one type of news from one very specific channel, you might actually learn different kind of informations than what you learn from a completely different channel. And um, this is a problem because it might lead, the people have their preferences in terms of channels and news sources, and it might lead to problem in the sense that you might actually miss a very important, accurate information. And we see this kind of information 
challenge these these biased information environments in many cases from COVID nineteen to to climate change, and that means that there is a lot of people out there who miss a lot of knowledge just because of watching one type of news over the other. And my big intervention would be is to try to change this information environment in the sense that it's not polarized anymore. And people, regardless of their politics or ideology or any type of beliefs, can be accessed uh, to the same uh, uh, type of information. That seems something to hope for, but uh, perhaps not expect to be achieved in a hurry, the end of polarisation. Teresa, would your message be to, to governments, to regulators, to all of us, to trust the scientists, whether they be epidemiologists or behavioural economists or whatever? Up to a point. But I think my main message would be in order to change our behaviour to improve population and planetary health, at the moment, the scales are, are, are tilted against that. So we need to redesign our environments to make healthier, more sustainable behaviour the easier one. So to make it easier, cheaper, more affordable to walk, bike, use public transport than currently the odds are in favour of using a motor car and flying places. So I'd be changing the environments. And then in order to achieve that, because most of that is outside of our individual control. It's about having policies that are built on the best evidence. So it's behavioural science, economic science, social science, cognitive science, and actually implementing those policies. But that's a tough nut to crack because there are any number of interests in there. You know, there's political ideology, there's corporate interests. We've got different publics with different views. That's the space where this has to be played out. At the moment, I don't believe that the public interest is served strongly enough by the policies that we have. Well, what we obviously need is two great multidisciplinary institutes like uh, the Benton Institute in Cambridge and the Institute for Advanced Studies in Toulouse. And that's where we'll end for this episode. Thank you very much to our expert panel, Teresa Marteau from the University of Cambridge and Bensa Buggle from the IAST. Let us know what you think of this edition of Crossing Channels. You can contact us via Twitter. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study is IAS Toulouse. And I am Ruskin147. If you enjoyed this programme, then do listen to our other Crossing Channels episodes, notably our recent edition with the Kiev School of Economics talking about the Ukraine invasion. And please join us next month for the next edition where we'll be looking at what political leaders can learn from history. <laughs>